You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Okay, uh, why don't we get started? Uh, welcome everybody to the final entry in the 2020 through 21 Krika lecture series. My name is Ted Gerber. I'm the faculty director of Krika, or also known as the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia. So uh, I'm really pleased to introduce today's speaker, who is uh, Kares Shank, and she is an associate professor of political science at Nazarbayev University in Nur Sultan, Kazakhstan. And uh, this is one of the great advantages of, uh, you know, the Zoom world that we live in now that we're able to host Caress. And, and I'm especially grateful to her because uh, right now it's three in the morning in Kazakhstan. So uh, she's quite graciously agreed to talk to us in our normal Krieg lecture slot, uh, which is our tradition. Um, she is an expert in uh, the politics of immigration and national identity in Eurasia. She is a political scientist. And I have to say that I myself have learned a tremendous amount uh, from uh, Caress about, um, from her work about uh, immigration policies in Russia. Uh, most notably, she published uh, recently uh, with the University of Toronto Press, her book, which is called Why Control Immigration, uh, or Why Control Immigration, uh, Strategic Uses of Migration Management in Russia. And I really think this is the authoritative book on how Russian migration policies have evolved and, how, and the factors that have gone in, the political economic kinds of factors that have gone in, into shaping Russia's evolving policies with respect to um, international immigration. She's also recently published an article in Nationalities Papers called The Migrant Other uh, Exclusion Without Nationalism. And she's also finally uh, another impressive achievement. She recently got an NCEER grant for the uh, Eurasia data collection part of the CoronaNet project, which is a project she's been involved in, uh, involving collecting data about coronavirus uh, 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 policies across the whole. I guess the itself is multinational, but she's been in charge of the. Um, uh, Eurasian part of this. And I, I believe that's what she's going to be talking to us today. I've always really enjoyed hearing about Caressa's research because she typically presents a sort of uh, skeptical iconoclastic perspective, not afraid at all to take on conventional wisdoms. And so I'm, I'm sure we're in for a real treat. Uh, her topic today is Eurasian responses to the COVID-19 crisis between fact and fear. So uh, welcome Caress, and I'll turn the floor over to you. And um, Look forward very much to your lecture. Thanks. Okay, thank you very much, Ted, for the great, the gracious introduction. And I will indeed be talking about uh, Eurasian COVID pol politics and responses. I'm getting my PowerPoint up for some reason. I shut it down as I was getting ready. Okay. Um, can you see this? The PowerPoint. Yep, it's up there. Perfect. You're, you're okay. All sorry, I, after all of this time of you know of of Zoom calls and all of these things, I still, for some reason, had a moment of hesitation. Okay, here we go. So Eurasian uh, responses to the COVID nineteen crisis between fact and fear. So what I want to share today 
is a new project that I began last August, which is funded by a special COVID-19 grant from Nazarbayev University. And we're at the stage where we've collected a ton of data and we're really slowly starting to wade through this data. So I have a really amazing team of student research assistants who have been crucial for the development of our data collection instruments, of our data collection and analysis, and my own mental health because they've been really an amazing um, a group of people that have pushed forward this project with me. So I specifically want to thank uh, Yerjan, Alia, Takshan, and Pirizat for helping me pull together the, the information in this presentation with the dis disclaimer, of course, that any mistakes or misrepresentations of the data are my responsibility and not theirs. So I titled this uh, talk, Re Eurasian Responses to the COVID-19 Crisis Between Fact and Fear. Um, but really what I'm gonna talk about only implicitly addresses the between fact and fear part because at this point the, the project is evolving so quickly um, that it's actually, you know, the, the frames are shifting and all of these sorts of things. But I do implicitly talk, uh, kind of address the idea of, of fear and, um, and fact as well. So what I'd like to do in the next few minutes is to explain the genesis of this project, which began even before the pandemic hit and briefly kind of lay out the scope of our data collection strategy. And I wanna take a purposefully um, data before theory type of approach, um, but I will suggest a couple of literatures that I'm spending time with um, that I find to be meaningful and inspiring, and then venture a guess as to how they might connect with what we're finding. Um, and then I wanna test out an initial framing of, of some of our data using a small selection of, of our most recent data. Um, so this project is born out of my previous research in addition to everyday experiences living for the last 10 years in Kazakhstan and traveling for the last 15 years in Eurasia. So my previous and continuing work has been on migration governance in Russia and Eurasia, as Ted mentioned. And in the area of migration, there's a really vast gulf between policy and policy making processes on the one hand and the lived experience of those on the ground, whether that's migrants or bureaucrats or law enforcement agents. But this can't simply be explained as lawlessness or a predatory state or broken rule of law or bad governance. And I'm even increasingly dissatisfied with using informality frames like the dual state or network governance or corruption to try to explain why the state of affairs continues where the policies are so disconnected from everyday practices. And as I've lived in Kazakhstan and traveled in Russia, I've experienced this sort of disconnect between law and practice in many ways. And one of the most interesting and sort of funny um, mystifying example centers on the use of car seats, infant seats, um, infant safety seats. So when I travel, I usually have at least one or two little people in tow, um, beginning from the time that they're, you know, just uh, a few months old, all the way, all the way through their car seat ages. And in my, I have encountered a dizzying variation when it comes to how when it comes to how drivers, whether it's taxi drivers or whether it's my own personal friends relate to car seat laws. So I've encountered friends and taxi drivers who will not take us somewhere without a car seat. I had another experience where a friend wanted to take my family on a road trip to Lake Baikal and she tried to find a car seat from a friend but in the end she said well let's just go anyways without a car seat but if we get fined 
you have to pay the ticket. <laughs> okay. Um, and then there was the taxi driver from going from Novosibirsk to Tomsk, who insisted, insisted on schooling me in how to install a car seat correctly, even though it was my car seat that I had brought on the airplane. Um, he would not stop when the baby was screaming so that I could take her out of the car seat. And then finally, when we did stop and we're finished with, you know, sitting there in the in the in the parking lot, um, ready to go again, he just took off across the parking lot before I even had a chance to buckle her in. And I said, I said, well, just wait, just wait. I haven't have I haven't even buckled her in yet. And he said, oh, well, don't worry. It's actually no big deal. Just hold her on your lap. She'll be happier anyways. <laughs> and so I think that these experiences really show how differently people relate to state regulations on a very kind of everyday level. So both my research on migration and these types of experiences have provoked a number of questions that can be explored, I think, by looking at a variety of different public policy areas, whether it's migration or healthcare or infrastructure. So I had already been thinking about research areas, including vaccines and public health and safety and behavioral choices before the pandemic hit, but the pandemic offered a really equally great opportunity, plus the funding, to investigate these questions further. So some of the driving questions that we are asking in this project are, when does the law matter? And when and how do people follow the law? And more fundamentally, but probably more esoterically, what does this reflect about what people believe about the state, about risk, about their responsibilities to community and how are those beliefs formulated? And in order to keep my foot in the political science world, I'm also asking, does the way that the government packages information affect belief formation? And then are people mobilized by, for example, fear or by some sort of rationalistic or numerically oriented packaging of data? Are they motivated, motivated by appeals to community, um, by public goods provision? And then what are the feedback channels that allow the government to get information from the public? And here there's an underlying question or assumption um, of whether the government adapts to public demands. And just to give you a preview of what we're finding, the government, at least in Kazakhstan, is surprisingly responsive to the public, much more than you would expect if you were looking at policymaking through an authoritarian lens, explaining political developments through the framework of authoritarianism. So because these questions are so wide and abstract, our data collection is what I call beyond mixed methods because it's very eclectic. And I think that that's appropriate because I don't want to impose a theoretical framework on the data too soon. And oftentimes theoretical approaches come entangled with methodological norms and conventions that can get in the way of just kind of stripping things down, starting at the ontological level, moving towards epistemology and letting that inform how we in, um, interact with our data and with our interlocutors. So even with the more quantifiable bits of our data collection, the guiding ethos is really ethnographic and ground from the ground up. And so for example, um, even in our survey work, um, I see this as providing context for the ethnography rather than vice versa, using ethnography to kind of lead into um, figuring, how, figuring out how, our, um, how generalizable our findings are. 
Um, but all of these data collection instruments, so um, we're looking at uh, part a structured participant observation, which I'll share a little bit with you in a few minutes. We're doing interviews. Um, we've done a little bit of an analysis of conspiracy theories in Kazakhstan, some analysis on vaccine politics. Um, we're doing a big uh, media data collection project, uh, part of the project. Um, we have some survey and we have, um, as Ted mentioned, a structured policy analysis through the CoronaNet, which at, for, for today's talk is really kind of subsumed under um, this larger project. Um, so all of this sort of data is really swimming around right now. And um, we've collected a lot of data, but it's really gonna take some time to sort out what we think is actually going on. Um, but today I'm gonna share some of my initial impressions. Um, so rather than a literature review or a kind of theoretical framing, let me just mention a couple of literatures that I've found influential and that are guiding how I'm thinking about the data that we're finding. It's also very eclectic. So I can't be a political scientist of Eurasia without mentioning the literature on authoritarianism. Um, but basically that's all I'm going to do and is acknowledge that it's there. <laughs> um, but I'm increasingly skeptical that we can explain politics in Eurasia using regime focused concepts. I actually don't think that's very controversial though, because I think scholars of authoritarianism are increasingly using authoritarianism, not as a variable, but as an entry point into deconstructing and redefining political processes. Another important literature is the informality literature. Um, I think it's a really good and useful concept, um, informality, for studying Eurasia. Um, I'm not sure that if it's really it, it, that it's really the appropriate framework for capturing what we are looking at in this project, though, in terms of you know COVID um, and, as a way of looking at kind of belief state society relationships and how states might affect those beliefs. Um, another interesting literature is uh, kind of a conglomeration of uh, everyday studies, which takes a page from the study of everyday nationalism. Um, also historical studies like uh, Sheila Fitzpatrick's um, every, Everyday Stalinism. Um, and I think this takes us a step closer to getting at what politics looks like for ordinary people outside of episodic or mobilizational moments. So there's also some, in, in addition to this, there's in some interesting work being done on micro level analysis and social psychology. And a lot of really great, a lot of great research being done in this area. Um, a, a lot of it takes uh, certainly an individual level of analysis, but it's not exactly every day. And I think that it, it, you know, I'm not really entirely satisfied with the level of nuance that some of these studies capture because they primarily use survey data. So they're kind of giving us the thin top layer, which is generalizable, but not necessarily giving us uh, a great deal of depth. Um, the biopolitics literature and its associated branches are pretty interesting for thinking about the types of issues that we're interested in. Um, <clears throat> So the biopolitics literature can help us rethink the state on some level, depending on who we take our cues from. So we could take cues from Agamben, Giorgio Agamben, with his um, very heavy-handed sort of top-down Schmidtian approach towards sovereignty. Or we could take a more stripped-down version of Foucault that can be used to think about the productive capacity of the state, which I'll unpack a little bit more in a few minutes. 
there's also a strand or an offshoot of bio, biopolitical thinking that dissects the quantification of persons, which is absolutely relevant for our research, especially in terms of things like COVID case counts, death rates, and other official statistics, not only in the creation of these statistics, but also in the public display and the discourses that surround what can be a really hypernumerical type of messaging. Um, biopolitics is also useful for think for, useful to the extent that it takes rhetoric and discourse seriously, and I think as a critical exercise, this is very useful. Um, ontologically, I lean a little bit more towards a realist position, but nevertheless, I think uh, you know biopolitics is useful, though it cert has certain limitations. Um, Perhaps coming from left field is the literature on philosophy of religion. Um, I'm not necessarily looking to include religion or even religious belief as a variable, but I do find the very well-developed discussions surrounding the relationship between belief and reason that are located in the studies of philosophy of religion. These are very useful, um, interesting, very thought-provoking for how we study this belief thought behavior nexus. There's also some very interesting studies on the cognitive processes of belief. The limitations of these of this literature though is that it's primarily centered on non-orthodox or non-western or non Western, non-Eastern Christianity. And so how much we can apply this to the Russian context or to a Muslim context like Kazakhstan is important to think through. And finally, um, intellectual history and, um, and uh, epistemology are really interesting and important for contextualizing these thought processes that lead to belief and action um, by governments and by citizens, because these are embedded in his specific historical context that need to take into consideration ideas and ideas transfer, as well as trends and fashions in how knowledge is produced and accepted. So again, these are all literatures that I'm reading at various different levels of interest and intensity. I'm not sure um, what will stick and how the intellectual trajectory of this project will end up, but please stay tuned for the next five to seven years because I think it will be an interesting journey of discovering the appropriate theoretical home for situating our findings. And I'm actually really not opposed to experimenting with different um, types of frameworks to see um, what might be a good fit by kind of, uh, you know, kind of uh, exploring alternatives. Okay, so for the rest of my time, I'd like to explore one potential framing of our data that I'm testing out. And it deals with the ideas of coercion, care, and trust. So coercion is a pretty traditional component, not only of authoritarian governance, but also is an essential part of state capacity. So um, also, since we're talking about how states message their populations, it's appropriate to mention the framework of informational autocracy, which can perhaps be seen as a type of coercive, um, coercive messaging. Um, however, I think that the idea that skillful messaging can cover over bad policies, which is uh, really central to the explanation of informational autocracies, I find that that really doesn't hold water in the Eurasian systems because there's so little trust in the messages that the government puts out, especially in the areas that we're dealing with, with everyday things like health behaviors, um, that we really need to search beyond this to understand 
why governments message the way that they do and then how, how the public uh, accepts that. Um, so there's at least a portion of the biopolitics literature that unpacks the idea that the state wants the population to be productive. Now this is theorized in the context of liberalism and is specifically focused on economic types of productivity. So this is foundational to the very first conceptualization of biopolitics as outlined by Foucault. Now, I wouldn't say that it's accurate um, to say that Foucault is advocating for an ethic of care on the part of the state, because his concept of the population was an aggregate sort of mass of potentially productive economic inputs, not necessarily individuals in need of individual care. So Foucault's focus seems to be more on the strategies or the governmentalities, which are seen as rational efforts to make the population as a whole productive. Now, I could take a, a sort of public goods perspective on coercion versus provision, but I do think this biopolitics perspective really adds something important to conceptualizing those things that the state provides or those ways in which the state tries to mobilize the pro productivity and kind of overall health of the population. But I'm not entirely convinced that biopolitics takes us all the way to explaining, especially an authoritarian ethic of care, which I should say is absolutely selective. This ethic of care is absolutely selective. So I'm not advocating that authoritarian governments, you know, uh, carte blanche care for their publics, um, but but the, but that that, that this, this ethic does exist, um, even though it's selective, and that selectivity becomes really important. <clears throat> So for now, I'm going to leave the suggestion hanging in the air that engaging the biopolitics bio literature may be a way of helping us to think beyond current conventions and frameworks um, addressing authoritarianism. So my puzzle is this. Why do states pursue conflicting tasks? So in the COVID-19 era, we can see that states pursue coercive enforcement strategies, something like police monitoring of masking orders or social distancing, alongside policies of care like free vaccines. Now, traditional answers would lead us in the direction of state interests, maximizing power or duration in office or votes or mobilization or demobilization, or perhaps providing public goods as facades or symbols in order to gain legitimacy. And all of these answers are fine, but they only tell us a part of the story. And the problem is if we keep telling the same parts of the story over and over again, I think that we're going to lose the imagination to think that perhaps the story has another angle as well. And could that angle we are exploring be that even authoritarian states sometimes in some circumstances, some in some circumstances, simply want to do a good job in order to care for their populations. But states are in a difficult position because in the Eurasian context, the populations generally don't trust states. And again, this is because the state's ethic of care is selective. 
So here's what we think is going on based on the data we have so far. The public wants a caretaking state. And I'll show you how we know this using uh, data from one of our survey experiments. But when the state offers that care that the people want, the people don't trust it. So the argument I'm, I'm testing out is this, that the COVID-19 crisis has hit Eurasian governments where they are the weakest, where trust meets personal choices. So amid, uh, you know, among populations that are used to having a state that doesn't reliably provide public goods, the pandemic has really shown a light on these sort of conflicting but mutually constitutive ideas that people have to take care of themselves and that the state really has no or little impact on uh, personal behaviors and personal beliefs. So even when the state provides care, it actually does very little to overcome existing distrust. Now, in the larger picture, my empirical focus for kind of testing this argument is vaccine hesitancy and um, the vaccine politics that are um, going on in uh, both Russia and, and Kazakhstan. Today, I'm going to give you a, a bit of a wider sweep of the situation, not necessarily limited to vaccines. So none of these things are really new. Vaccine hesitancy is not new in Kazakhstan or Russia. Neither is a selectively caring state or public distrust or really any of the ideas that we're exploring here. But COVID-19 does give us an opportunity to study these dynamics because they are increasingly salient. So first, how do we know that the public wants a caretaking state? Um, and to make this argument, I'm drawing on uh, results from nationally representative surveys in Russia in November of 2020 and Kazakhstan of, in February of 2021. So we included a survey experiment on nas these nationally representative surveys. Um, our sample sizes are a little bit different. In uh, Russia, we have a sample size of 1,600. In Kazakhstan, a sample size of 3,000. And we randomly assigned respondents to one of three groups. The first group I call the coercion group. The second is the neutral or information group. And the third group is the care group. So in the coercion group, um, they the respondents um, read this scenario. Imagine you live in a region that is seeing a sharp rise in the number of COVID-19 cases. Strict mask wearing policies are in place, but so far no general quarantine. In response to the pandemic situation, the government holds frequent press briefings to inform the public of the increasing number of fines given to people for not wearing masks. So this is the coercive message. Um, group two that has the informational message or the neutral message focuses not on the number of fines, but rather on um, press briefings to inform the public of the number of people infected with the virus. And then the care group um, gets you know, largely the same message, but at the end it's changed so that the government holds frequent press briefings to inform the public of the increasing number of vaccine doses available without cost to all who would like them. And then after this uh, scenario, we asked people how effective they think these measures, these measures are for reducing the spread of the virus. Now, 
Um, these are the results on the on the left is Kazakhstan or on the left is Russia and the right is Kazakhstan. And the between group differences in Russia are statistically significant, but a little bit less so in Kazakhstan. Nevertheless, we see the same patterns that the public accounts coercive messages and care oriented messages as more effective, producing more effective results than sort of neutral or information oriented messaging. So we know that the public wants a caretaking state, even though that's only slightly more than they want a coercive state, which is also interesting, but it's a question that I'm going to leave aside for right now. But we also see that the people don't trust the state's care that they want. So I'll, I'm going to show this in three ways. First, using our survey data on vaccination. Um, using our participant observation data on mask wearing and social distancing, and then fleshing out some nuance through some of our interview data in Kazakhstan. So first, survey data on vaccination at this point will not be surprising to anybody who's followed um, Russian politics, um, except that our data, I think, shows actually even a higher vaccine resistance than in some other surveys. So this is Russia and we see a vast majority responding no to how, uh, to, will, uh, sorry, the question is, is stated wrong. Um, the question is, will you get the coronavirus vaccine? And the, the no respondents are um, roughly half of our sample. Um, in Kazakhstan, it is also a really vast majority that uh, answer no, they will not get the coronavirus vaccine. Now, this vaccine hesitancy is despite relatively high levels of fear that people themselves or their loved ones will become seriously ill with the virus. So a vast majority, again, um, reporting in Russia that they are very afraid or somewhat afraid of becoming ill themselves or um, having a loved one become seriously ill um, and similar types of results in Kazakhstan. Now, what this suggests is that people take the virus seriously. If they're afraid of the virus, they, they aren't denying that the virus exists. So even though people are afraid of getting the virus or becoming seriously ill with the virus, um, and even though they want the state to provide, they don't actually plan to take advantage of the state's care when it is provided. So let's look next at our participant observation data. And this is just from Kazakhstan. And this is just a selection of our data, but I do think it is suggestive. Now, this data is collected by student research assistants who are all throughout Kazakhstan in various different places. So um, they're collecting data in cafes, on public transportation, hospitals, clinics, parks, stores, any places that people go. And they have a structured set of things that they are observing, um, things like mask wearing, um, social distancing practices, um, enforcement and things like this. And they input all of these observations into a Qualtrics survey so that we have a systematizable output. And then they can also add their observations, upload photos, documents, and things like that. So we see from these um, graphics that compliance with everyday policies on social distancing and mask wearing are pretty slim. So the general population, so we've, we've done about, um, we've observed about 40,000 people um, in various public places. And we see that um, people 
the general population practicing social distancing is pretty slim. So these kind of practicing uh, people that practice social distancing is about 29% of the sample, whereas people that you know absolutely didn't practice social distancing is about 45. Over here we see um, mask wearing by employees and business owners, which presumably should be a bit higher since they need to kind of set the example for the customers in their, in their shops. Um, we see that it's uh, a majority of um, a majority of employees and business owners are either wearing masks only partially covering their face, which is this white section of 21% or not wearing a mask at all 27%. Um, and then 12% uh, not covering their faces. So we have, you know, a majority of people really not, uh, not, not wearing their masks correctly. Um, enforcement is also pretty lax. So here we see that, uh, you know, of 40,000 observations, we've only encountered 27 reminders by police or um, militia, uh, military to wear masks, whereas we see many, many more reminders by private security guards uh, to wear their masks, which, which means that the enforcement is really being devolved to business owners. And so business owners are, are being fined more often than um, individuals are. Um, but the enforcement at, of business owners is really quite variable. So my kids were telling me the other day um, in great detail which stores in our um, area neighborhood you can go to to buy candy or whatever it is that kids buy um, without a mask. You can go to this store without a mask, but if you go to this store, you have to wear your mask. So if you have, if you, if you forgot your mask, you need to go to, you need to change your mind and go to this other store. So this is very variable. So again, even though people may approve of coercive policies, slightly less than care-oriented policies, it still doesn't have a very big impact on individual behavior, which is, again, surprising given the high levels of fear of becoming seriously ill with the virus. So I want to turn to our interview data for further clues to understand some of the complexity that we see. So, so far we've interviewed almost 250 people, including medical personnel, other health experts, school administrators, social media influencers, state workers, and many average everyday citizens. And though we found really a lot of very interesting things, let me kind of distill it down to a couple of key points really briefly. It seems that people can be divided into several categories those people that trust the government, those people that generally distrust the government, but they kind of comply, they go along anyways, um, and those people that actively distrust the government. So those who trust do so either because they genuinely trust the government or because they don't really feel like they have a choice. And in both cases, government policies and government decision-making has a sort of a sense of inevitability. So of those, for those that, that feel like they have no choice, um, they feel like they have to rely on the government, that there's really no other option. Um, some of our doctors fall into this category. So this first quote um, comes from a young female doctor in Nur Sultan. I have no other choice but to trust the government. I do have doubts about their statistics, the incidence of infection, death rates, vaccination rates they provide though. Um, others think that the government did the best that they could 
with a difficult situation. So we have this quote from a uh, NU student at Nur Sultan. Well, honestly, they, they're really just doing everything that they can, right? If the government policy, usually uh, people um, that have this type of opinions uh, think that if the government policies didn't work, um, it might be because they weren't strict enough or because they didn't encourage in compliance by giving people more information. So in the early stages of the pandemic, uh, especially during quarantine times and in the height of the virus, which uh, here in Kazakhstan was uh, kind of in the middle of the summer, July, uh, right around July, August, um, there was an appeal to fear and to really strict measures. There was a video that circulated last summer showing really full hospitals. People were laying on the floors. And these videos were, were really trying to scare people into staying home and to you know, stay socially distanced. Um, there was also an increased police presence during the height of the quarantine that enforced mask wearing and stay at home orders with um, fines, with administrative arrests and these sorts of things. I mean, there was, there was a heavy police presence um, monitoring when people went outside of their homes. Um, but I would say that this is not this, those people that trust the government, it's not a blind trust. It's a mitigated trust. It's a thinking trust. It's a critical trust. So we see from this um, bank employee from Nur Sultan that there was a feeling that the state did everything behind closed doors and it wasn't clear what was being decided. So even if I still trust, this person says, I understand that everything was very private. I would like their discussions to be more accessible, to know what they base their decisions on. So again, this is a critical trust, right? Trusting because there's not much of a, a, an alternative, but also kind of thinking about uh, the deficiencies and in, in um, why this trust might not be fully, maybe fully deserved. Now, this trust bleeds into the next category where people are more distrustful of the government, but they still comply. They're still relatively compliant, at least to um, a limit. Now, what I find most interesting about this group is the idea that people assert the idea that they need to take care of themselves because they don't expect the state to do it. So even among those who trust the government, they understood or the, and they believed, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, that the government and the healthcare system couldn't care for all people at an individual level. So we, this is a good example of that type of mentality from this housewife in Almaty. I was sick in June when everyone in the city knew that it was useless to call an ambulance because they didn't take people to the hospital and often they didn't even come at all. The biggest problem is the fear that the state will not provide the necessary assistance to everyone. Now, many of our doctors that we've interviewed also fall into this middle group of not really trusting the government to provide necessary supplies, especially, and not accurately reporting statistics to the public. So shortage of, shortage of supplies has been a really big problem. Um, it's led to, you know, doctors having only kind of a limited number of sets of uh, PPE, per personal protective equipment uh, per month, like maybe even just five sets, which, I mean, these are obviously one-time use um, uh, outfits, um, but they're only given five or maybe a few more, maybe a few less. It's very unpredictable what the government is going to um, 
what the government is going to provide. Um, but there's also limits to this type of trust. And this, I think, is um, represented by this second quote from a, a language teacher in Almaty that demonstrates how people just kind of relaxed um, over time. So um, she says, you think, you're, you think to yourself, okay, nobody's going to protect me. I'm responsible for myself. I will protect myself. But at the same time, I will act in some places against the rules that the state has established. Well, we had it like this. We stayed at home for three months. I didn't even go out to the store. We were in strict self-isolation. We didn't go to relatives. We just stayed at home. And then as the absurdity began, the mess, actually, when this is the time she's referring to, when the, the, the case counts actually started spiking, um, everyone relaxed because they did not trust and they did not see the point in it. Um, now, these are the middle population, which is actually probably somewhat on the fence about things like vaccines. It seems like the things that garner the greatest distrust among this category and the next are um, things like the numbers about coronavirus, uh, both the death rates and the case rates. And if these things are linked to corruption, it sort of activates a longstanding mistrust. But when these things aren't necessarily linked to corruption, there's probably more room to influence this group to comply with certain policies, including things like vaccinations. Now, vaccinations are not compulsory in Kazakhstan, um, like mask wearing policies or business closures. But I think that this middle group is probably the group um, that is most, uh, a, most willing to be kind of influenced. And then finally, we have a group that actively distrusts the government and they pr promote conspiracy theories like the government has created the virus, the government airdropped the virus out of helicopters. Um, now, for our data, we, we really need more interviews of this group directly since what we have for the most part is um, respondents who kind of report on conspiracy theories that other people believe. Now, the media really doesn't seem to be helping on this note in relation, especially to things like vaccines, because the media tends towards a just the facts types of, type of reportage without a lot of analysis or explanation. So when there are reports about people dying after being vaccinated or contracting the virus after vaccination, people don't really know what to do with this information. And there's not an effort on the media to kind of unpack what that means in kind of epidemiological sorts of uh, um, language. Now, I think it's likely this media and communication nexus that fails to overcome the gap between government care and people's willingness to accept that care and be vaccinated. So I have a couple of interview excerpts here that are not necessarily as much about distrust, but about the utter irrelevance of government policies on people's everyday lives because other things just simply matter more. So one person says, people rarely think with their head, they think with their pocket. And on a related note, another person says, people are not afraid of the state, people are afraid of losing money. And then a third person really gets at some of these social aspects when she says, it seems to me that mentality and culture play a big role in why people don't follow restrictive measures. So despite all the risks, despite the fact that you yourself can die, 
you are more worried about what your relatives will think of you if you don't go to a funeral. It will be a shame. They will be offended by me. Then they will not want to communicate with me. For people, the opinion of others is more important than their own safety. Um, so what do we take away from this in terms of the caring state, the coercive state, and trust in government? So my, my conclusions are still pretty preliminary, um, but I will say that the picture doesn't really look that promising at the moment. Um, people really mistrust the state because of past experiences and especially because of a knee-jerk reaction that links corruption and distrust. So from an inter interview with a, um, somebody from Ministry of, Self, uh, Ministry of Health, the question is, how can we make sure that people do not believe in, that people who do not believe in the state begin to believe in it? And the answer is, I do not know, honestly. In general, outside of the pandemic, the problem has long been that there is no trust in the state. During the pandemic, this issue took on even greater momentum. I do not follow politics in general, but I know that there is large embezzlement of state funds. And so this kind of highlights this very knee-jerk sort of reaction that if people don't trust the government, it's often because of corruption. And corruption is actually an assumption um, it, that people just kind of take for granted um, when interacting with the state. So even now that the state is actively promoting vaccination, uptake is still pretty low. Um, though there's a funny kind of development in the in the last week or so that now that they've announced that the the Kazakhstani produced vaccine is ready and is going to be introduced into you know kind of circulation, people are feeling pressure to get the Russian vaccine, which has been the only one that's been available up to this point, because um, they're afraid that they won't get a choice and then they'll end up having to take the Kazakhstani vaccine instead of the Russian vaccine. Whereas before they were they didn't want to take any vaccine at all. Um, so it seems to me that the weak point here is the messaging or those things that would create contact points between state and society. So we know that the government is actively making decisions. Sometimes these decisions are slow. Oftentimes they're imperfect. Um, certainly they're utilizing pockets of corruption. Um, so there's, you know, there's some, there's, we, we do have some evidence of, you know, certain types of corruption schemes that have happened during the, during the pandemic. I haven't really sorted them out in, in any sort of systematic fashion, but we know that they're, you know, we, we know that they exist for sure. Um, so whatever ethic of care the state has, it is really entangled with all sorts of other interests and priorities. And as a result, people are doing their own thing. They're looking out for themselves and their families. They're, they avoid interacting with the state as much as possible. They disregard a lot of the policies. So now, um, you know, we're in a situation where we've seen a, a big spike again in Kazakhstan, um, first because, uh, you know, five, six weeks ago was the Naruz holidays um, and people were getting together. And then there was a big spike um, after people were getting together. Now we're in Ramadan and people again are getting together. So even though restaurants are supposed to be closed um, in the evenings, there's still these sort of iftar uh, celebrations that are taking place and the cases are spiking as a result. So people are kind of generally disregarding um, government policies. And this is where things stand right now. They're still developing, you know, kind of on the ground as we see, you know, see uh, dynamics developing. And we're still really trying to just make 
sense of it all. So I'm really interested to hear your reactions, um, your thoughts and your suggestions, but I'm going to leave it here. And thank you very much. I appreciate um, the invitation and the ability to just discuss these things with you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Chris. That was really very fascinating. And I, I love how you went from all these very abstract, you know, social science theories and, and you know, right there you have several courses worth of you know, theories about uh, uh, politics, of, you know, authoritarianism and informality and all these different levels, biopolitics to the very fine grained empirical analysis with the, with the data you have. Okay, so uh, I will now open the floor for questions and ask anyone who has a question or a comment, and we welcome comments as well as questions to uh, use the raise hand function. And uh, as is traditional, I will start out uh, to, to uh, get things going with a question or two myself. So um, you know, it's, really, it's really interesting to me how you frame this in terms of lack of trust because, and, and you know, this reflects my own naivete and lack of knowledge, but I always thought of Kazakhstan as a place where, you know, compared to say Kyrgyzstan uh, or in, uh, the other Central Asian countries, at least, there was actually more trust in the government. So I'm wondering, and you know, even say compared to Russia, I mean, I thought, you know, my experience of, of Kazakhstan is that they actually, you know, think pretty highly of the government in, in relative terms. I mean, I don't think there's any country where people actually fully trust the government, maybe in China, I don't know. Uh, so, so I'm just wondering, could you say a little bit more? Um, and, and I, you know, it's not because, because I'm sure you're focused on the Kazakhstan data, but you've looked at some other countries as well. And you're familiar, you know, with other countries, with Russia, for example, like, how would you just sort, sort of compare the level of trust in the government in Kazakhstan compared to Russia? And also, a follow -up, is that also related to the regime change in Kazakhstan? Like maybe I'm my view of Kazakhstan is rooted in a Nazarbayev era uh, situation and perhaps that's changed or do you see it as being relatively stable? The, the level, of, the low level of trust as you characterize. Yeah, to kind of start backwards, I would say that it really I, I don't think it has much to do with the regime change. I mean, I, I think that these the, these things are pretty stable. So I think that where our idea of um, kind of Kazakhstani buy-in to the government comes from is from studies of national identity, where you know the national identity works, right? The the, the government produced national identity in Kazakhstan. It works, and people buy it. Um, when you get down to kind of lower level sorts of things, whether it is um, especially, again, especially related to things like corruption or just kind of um, government government services or things like this, I think the government, the people generally just think the government is pretty irrelevant and pretty kind of out there and, you know, not really connected to our day-to-day -day lives, which again is something really interesting about the way that we think about authoritarianism. We think of it as being so like oppressive on people's day-to-day -day lives. And of course, in some ways it is, but in other ways, it's just absent. It's just irrelevant, right? So um, so I think that that is kind of a, a nuance in Kazakhstan that the, the the national identity doesn't produce that same sort of effect all the way down to other types of issues. Um, in terms of comparison to, um, I, I really do think that this is a wider post-Soviet phenomenon. And I think that, you know, from what I've heard and read, um, this comes from a long-standing kind of tradition of 
propaganda, right? And people knowing that they're being propagandized too, and just basically disregarding a lot of the messages that the government gives them, which is not to say that there's not a media effect, right? Because we've all done these studies about post-Crimea post Russia, and we know that the media framing of these big picture events mattered a lot and it changed public opinion, right? Um, but I think what's interesting is that some of these sort of smaller level issues, which I think are probably more kind of tightly held to the way that people think and act on the day-to-day -day level, um, are not really held in the same sort of uh, the same sort of regard. So they're probably mobilizable, but it would take a gigantic effort on the part of the state. The state really just simply doesn't deploy on, you know, just kind of everyday sort of health and safety types of issues. So this is actually a really interesting opportunity to explore not only cross country, but by issue to see what kind of what messages stick and where the government's willing to kind of put their energy in terms of messaging the public. Great, thanks. Yeah, very, very interesting. I, mean, I, I agree. You certainly hit on a very um, unusual perspective, and, and this is a great case uh, because of you know the nature of the pandemic and how it does affect everybody, and it either affects them through exposure or fear of the pandemic, plus the exposure or concern about the policies reaction to them. Okay, um, other questions. Uh, who else would like to ask a question? Oh, yes, please go ahead, sir. Okay, may I ask a question? Yes, absolutely, please. Go okay. Ahead. Um, First, could you please introduce yourself? Uh, okay, sir. my name is Ki, uh, Ki San. I'm a, uh, a staff at the University of Oregon. Ah, great. And um, uh, actually, yeah, I have, um, I think it's very interesting. I'm a psychologist. And uh, I have, uh, I, when I heard uh, her talk, I got the impression that, uh, um, it's very similar. To actually, the many uh, the the participants' responses to the to the messages from the government uh, in the in Oregon, of course, from CDC, and also from the from the media, the mainstream media. Um, it's a it's a okay a Democrat as a governor, and uh, the the issue is uh, there are many mandate uh, about uh, say uh, the face mask and uh, from the from the state government the problem is uh, uh, of course there are a minority in the sense that less than 50 percent people who do not follow the the the, the governor's uh, the mandate but never possible okay but never possible and the the, the, the issue is uh, it's not I think it's about trust issue it's the, the issue is of course uh, um, it's a, the message is actually from CDC. The governor uh, is viewed as a person who are actually she's a lawyer, so she may not know have the knowledge about uh, the pandemics. And uh, but uh, certainly the CDC has a message. The, but uh, there's such a, I mean, disagreement in here is that uh, uh, because many people believe that uh, their current uh, policy is not based on sciences; it's based on politics. So it's a very, I mean, politics is someone try to use this uh, pandemic as an opportunity to control people or try to expand their power. Then the question is, uh, I think that I see some similarity. I don't know if uh, in the Kazanstan, I mean, the, in there, that's, uh, there are some similar issue because in here is many 
people perceive that uh, there is the power power struggle. It's not a medical issue. It's a really power issue. Okay, thank you. Yeah, that's such an interesting comparison. I'm glad that you brought this up. So I follow the uh, the um, Oregon's politics of of COVID a little bit because I have friends there, um, and uh, you know I, I I totally resonate with what you're saying in terms of the politicization and the and I and I think that this is exactly what COVID is showing and how uh, to the degree to which people distrust science because of politicization, right? And I think one of the things that is interesting about, you know, the Eurasian region, Kazakhstan and Russia is that um, at least at the individual level, COVID policies are much less politicized, right? There's not the same degree of, um, polarization. There's not the same degree of kind of public shaming of ideas, you know, on both sides, right, in terms of what you do and what you don't do and what you believe and what you don't believe. Um, we did see a little bit of that at the beginning of the pandemic, um, but hardly any, hardly any of it all anymore. So it's really become very depoliticized. But this opportunity to control and to expand power. So first, I want to say that politics creates realities, right? So even if these things are politically driven as well as scientifically driven, politics creates new realities in terms of how people experience uh, both the policies and you know what they're what they're allowed to do and not do. So that's that's important. Uh, the discourses also create realities that people have to deal with. Um, well, whether whether people are using this uh, opportunity to expand power, I mean, this is a this is a thesis that we've seen coming out of Russia, especially when um, there was moves towards digital surveillance and things like this. That this was uh, that that the government was using the opportunity to um, to expand their power. Um, I think this is kind of an easy. It's, it's kind of an easy and maybe even a cheap way to, to think about politics um, because, because it fits easily into our frames, our, our frames about, you know, how power is bad, right? And, uh, you know, those people that have power are necessarily becoming corrupt and things like that. Um, I really do think uh, that in, in many situations, of course, here I'm coming from this sort of ethic of care, right? I'm driving with an ethic of care um, from governments. And I do see that, that public, health, uh, public health and public uh, policy experts are, are not trying to, I mean, from my perspective, not trying to control people, but trying to provide solutions to problem, to salient problems that are on the ground. How salient those problems are is, of course, an ab, a, a question of political debate. But um, yeah, I just I I, um, I think that even in the even in the most authoritarian situations, um, the idea that politicians are using this as an excuse to further their own personal power. It's just a really thin, it's a really thin um, type of argument that I think doesn't hold water if we will really, really kind of get down to, if people would actually talk to the policymakers and they would really quickly understand um, that there is, that again, those motivations to solve these problems are really entangled on a lot of different levels. Um, but it's, I, I, well, 
I'm sure that there's some people that are trying to kind of think about their electability, but uh, that I, I don't think that that's first and foremost in in people's in in everybody's mind at least. Yeah, very very interesting. Uh, thank you for the question, um, and thank you for the the response. Um, yeah, I think maybe you know I I just want to note, uh, Chris, that we heard last week from Erica Marat in the Creek. Oh, right. And uh, you know, her whole focus was on the new use of surveillance technologies. And she mentioned this famous case in Russia where a guy was uh, fined because he was filmed taking out his garbage in a video camera and uh, that you know, led to all this hullabaloo. So, so uh, there is some evidence at least that that kind of thing sure. and I don't want to deny that authoritarianism is bad. Not, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that. Um, or that they, that they don't use power for bad purposes. I don't want to, I don't, please don't misunderstand me. But I, you know, I think that it's a, there's, a, there's a bigger picture too. Yeah, sure, sure. Of course, it's helpful to hear, you know, the, the, a perspective that's saying is not always 100%, you know, interested in, in, in increasing the power of the state only. Great. Uh, next, I want to recognize my colleague, Professor Yoshiko Herrera, who's Professor of Political Science. So there, I introduced you, Yoi, so you can just go right into your question. Great. Thanks. Thank you so much, Caress. So nice to see you, even if via Zoom. Um, and really, I mean, it's really interesting, very interesting work. Um, so something that struck me is what seemed to me hints or parallels with the Soviet um, approach of Soviet citizens to dealing with problems. So dealing with shortages or dealing with other issues, which is that you can't really rely on the state. I mean, it's kind of interesting if it's, I, I guess I would like press you a little bit on the meaning of distrust because one hand, it seems like a sort of complacent distrust of like, I don't think you're out to get me, but I'm not really expecting you to do much for me versus like, I have to be on guard because at any moment uh, the state might arrest me or take something from me or, or whatever. So I, I get a sense there's a kind of complacent, like you just can't rely on them to do stuff and you can't really trust what they're saying, which I think is very similar in Russia too, that people are not even, you know, rumors that Putin took one of the Western vaccines and not the Sputnik vaccine and, and stuff like that, like feeds into that same idea. So anyways, my comment slash question was just, I thought it might be interesting to think about this in terms of the um, previous work um, of informal networks and um, going informal, um, this um, uh, idea that people, you know, during uh, market crises, they start growing their own vegetables and just like trying to take care of themselves or dealing with their family because you can't really rely or trust the state. So I guess I just thought that might be an interesting legacy sort of connection that mm -hmm. you're picking up on. But thank yeah, you. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think that, I think that's exactly right. And um, that, that th these are long, longer standing things, which is why, you know, why I'm kind of seeking to put this sort of in, I mean, I'm, I'm calling it intellectual history, but maybe like a more historical context, uh, but it, in terms of how people are thinking, but we do, I mean, we absolutely see these sorts of shortage, shortage mentalities. So among the doctors, right? So um, doctors will kind of hoard, if they get seven PPE one month instead of five PPE one month, they'll hoard that back so that they can, just in case they might not get the same amount the following month, right? So we've seen that this is um, this sort of hoarding mentality uh, of shortages. And uh, yeah, I mean, so far that has, 
we don't see that that's produced informal sort of solutions, which I think is actually kind of interesting. Maybe this is kind of a, maybe, maybe because it's a shorter standing sort of uh, thing, but I think it's worth paying attention to, right? Like when, when does that cause sorts of um, problem solving outside of the system for those people that are in the system, especially uh, in terms of doctors. Um, And in terms of, you know, distrust being complacency versus on guard. Um, again, I don't want to deny that there is an element of people, or at least a section or subset of the population that does have a on guard type of distrust and that this is important. Um, but I think that that gets a lot of our scholarly attention. And so I don't at all deny it. I don't deny that it's important, but I also want to kind of focus on this sort of complacent, this complacent distrust where again, the seed is just irrelevant to people. And this does cause them to kind of, um, yeah, I guess one of the things that we saw early on is shortages of masks and medicines, just like ibuprofen, you know, Tylenol, things like that, because people just bought them up in, you know, in droves um, from the pharmacies just because they were, they were afraid, right? They were just buying anything. Um, So, uh, but but though we didn't see shortages of things like toilet paper or food. So it was only, only those of us that were watching the Western media that were buying toilet paper in really, in really vast quantities. And other people were just like, what are you, what are you doing? What's so funny. Um, But we really never had any uh, uh, from, from what I've seen food shortages um, to to the extent of what I've actually heard of, you know, from people in the U S which is kind of interesting. So um, in that sense, um, maybe the state actually did provide, uh, and people didn't notice because you know because because uh, they maybe had their expectations set in a certain way. But I think your your all your comments are really on point, and these are certainly directions that we want to explore a little bit more in 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 how we think. I'd like to follow up a little bit on on Yoi's point. So so it strikes me thinking about this that um, the issue of trust and the different forms of trust. Uh, May you know they manifest differently with respect to the, the different practices and the different the, the specific kinds of government-based messaging. So I mean, asking you know the government telling you you have to wear a mask is one thing, and if I don't trust the government, I say why should I wear a mask? But there's a low cost to me to actually wear a mask. I mean, I do maybe suffer the the risk of some ridicule from the non-mask wearers if there are a lot of those in, in town. But it's not really much. Whereas vaccines, you know, that the people, from what I understand, and I'm not one, but the people who are hesitant about vaccines, they believe that everywhere from some big computer like the black, the vaccines or some sinister plot to turn everybody into monkeys, versus, uh, well, I just don't trust a vaccine. You know, it could cause autism. It could cause all this stuff, and the government is just wants us. And so, I mean, have you thought much about how these different kinds of, you know. Uh, I don't know what to call the policy of the government might manifest differently in terms of the level of trust that's required on the population in order to adjust their behavior. Um, and maybe that's another angle to come at that, like, you know, vaccines, quarantines, you know, call an ambulance. I mean, it's really striking to think that, you know, people who are actually sick are not able to call the ambulance or they, they don't even bother calling the ambulance. It's a low cost to actually try to call it anyway, but they don't even bother calling um, I mean, in the PPE, that's a whole different type of trust. So, so trust itself, it turns out, you know, just thinking out loud in, in response to your presentation and your comments, you know, it's a very complex, multifaceted concept. And maybe this is an opportunity for you to unpack that a bit more. So 
I mean, any thought, you just wanted to make that observation, feel free to address Yeah, that. I think that's, that's a great idea. I mean, I, I think you're right that these things do require different. Um, and so I'm not, I mean, at this point, I'm kind of, uh, I might take those kind of one by one, but eventually kind of compare them. Uh, yeah, so I, I think that that, that, that is all um, good suggestions that we will take into, that we will, that we will follow up on for sure, because I, I think you're right. Okay, great. Oh, I briefly saw that uh, Katka had uh, her hand up, uh, but now she Z has disappeared from the. Oh, Kat, Katka, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Oh, yes, yes. Go ahead, please introduce yourself. And uh, hi, I'm Katka. I'm a PhD student here at UW Madison. I wanted to say thank you for your talk again. It was really great. And there's um, a conference coming up actually, um, which is sponsored by the Borghese Mellon Workshop on Care here at UW-Madison on the politics of care and it's totally free. So if anybody, including yourself would like to attend, I can um, maybe put the link in the chat if it's okay to do that. That would be great. Thank yes, you absolutely. very much. That's really interesting. Okay, there's that link and that's care across the, yeah, that. Looks very interesting. Okay, um, other questions or comments? May I? Absolutely, of course. Oh, yeah, okay, right, so, yeah, so thanks. I don't have the hand raise function um, since I was already a, um, a participant on this call, but um, Chris, this is so fascinating. And I mean, just, I'll just be honest, like, you know, most of the listening that I do about this issue is, New York Times uh, podcast, um, The Daily or This American Life. And uh, I guess one question that I have is um, for the comparison between Russia and Kazakhstan, how much is motivated by um, sort of foreign policy versus internal policy? Because at least, you know, at least the message that we listeners of New York Times or readers of New York Times have received in the last few days is that, you know, Russia, the Russian Federation is kind of treating the pandemic lackadaisically, but they are using the export of Sputnik V to great, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? I mean, they're, they're emphasizing that. So, um, Soft power. <laughs> soft power, soft power. So, uh, and I wasn't even aware until you mentioned it now that Kazakhstan is going to be producing its own vaccine or is producing its own vaccine. So um, is there a connection between, you know, uh, exporting the vaccine to other countries versus uh, internal uh, consumption of the vaccine? Yeah, great question. So my students um, make fun of me a lot because I focus on really, really kind of boring politics and I won't let them talk about Russian foreign policy. <laughs> and so stay tuned to my Facebook page because they made a whole bunch of memes out of this that I'm going to post in uh, in the next day or so, making fun of my, um, my, my unwillingness to talk about Russian foreign policy. But um, no, I think that you're right, that there is a, there's definitely a foreign, foreign policy component. Um, and you know, there's, there's, there's certainly the, 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 the factor of wanting to kind of 
wanting to be for Russia, wanting to be a part of the solution or, you know, the prestige of that comes along with being a part of the solution, uh, vaccine diplomacy, all of these sorts of things that we hear. Um, and I think that yeah, for certain that that's a part of image, image making. Um, Kazakhstan has not really been as on the forefront of this and they haven't really been marketing their vaccine as much to um to foreign audiences. So we'll kind of see if they, if, the, I mean, cause Kazakhstan's big into image and image making. So it would be surprising, in fact, if they didn't market their vaccine to a, a foreign, you know, a foreign market. Um, so I think for certain those foreign policy issues are there, um, but, I think maybe precisely because the discussion gets taken up by foreign, the foreign policy issues is one of the reasons that I kind of want to dig down a little bit deeper and to see what the implications are um, for domestic policy. I mean, I think that it's not it's it's not an either or, right? Like I, I don't think that governments are thinking about foreign policy in a separate kind of bundle than they think about domestic policies, right? They're thinking that I think they, you know often think about policies kind of comprehensively. So thinking about, you know, kind of policy decisions from both sides, uh, but not not isolating one from the other, which I, of course, am accused of doing in terms of domestic politics, is probably a, a better way to go, just recognizing that both, both are important. Mm -hmm. Okay, thanks. Okay, uh, well, you know, we've reached our usual finishing time of uh, 5.15 p.m. Um, that's uh, in central U.S. time, uh, so maybe it's 4.15 there. Uh, so, you know, thank you very much. Thank you. And uh, it's been a fascinating I, I, for one, will be very closely following uh, the development of this for the next five, seven years and hearing from me <laughs> along the way uh, because it's amazing work and um you know good for you and your team uh really uh grabbing the bull by the horns and moving forward quickly uh, so quickly uh response to the pandemic uh and generating this uh fascinating data and the many perspectives and i'm sure there'll be many you know very interesting publications to come out of this endeavor so congratulations and thank you very much and a particularly heartful thanks for uh getting up so early in the morning in order to share your work with us. So it's been a great pleasure.